Awesome. Well, hey, if you missed Bless Weekend last weekend, uh, there's a little peek into what we did. We sent out hundreds of serve team members from our church all across the county to do service projects. And one of the big projects that we did this year was in Adairsville, where later this year on September the 8th, we are launching a second Cross Point City Church location. Uh, so, so excited about this. It's going to be incredible. And listen, if you haven't already heard, we finally nailed down our meeting location, okay? Uh, we're actually going to launch this church in the theater at Adairsville High School, which is an incredible space, and we're really excited, too, about our partnership with the school system there. Uh, but that's just a huge answer to prayer, so thanks to those of you who've prayed for that. Uh, but I bring this up because in a couple Sundays, actually two weeks from now, on Sunday, May the 19th, we're going to have a vision picnic at Manning Mill Park in Adairsville to talk more about what we're doing there, okay? And so I want you to mark that on your, your calendar if you live in that part of the county. Uh, our plan is to hang out from about 3 to 6 p.m. that day. We're going to have food, inflatables for the kids. There are playgrounds there. You can bring a fishing pole and fish if you want. Just a lot of fun stuff to do. And around 4 p.m., we're going to share the latest news on what is happening with this second location and most importantly, how you can be a part, okay? And so here's the deal. Please don't miss this. Really important. If you live in the north part of our county, uh, I would say Cassville and north, I want to personally invite you to come to this picnic, okay? I also want to encourage you to bring some friends with you. And here's what you need to know. I'll put you at ease real quick. By coming, you're not committing to anything, all right? Uh, worst case, you get some free food out of it. And you get to hang with some great people, all right? But I at least want you to come and hear more about what we're doing. And then also quickly, because I know some people are confused about this, uh, I just want you to know, if you go to a Daresville, you're still going to hear me preach every Sunday. And I don't say that to like be weird or because I think I'm awesome. I've just heard a lot of confusion. Um, I've just heard people, well, I don't really want to go because if I go, then, you know, I've got to listen to somebody else and I, I want to hear James and I appreciate the sentiment. But again, listen, if you go, you're still going to hear me preach every Sunday. And if you're wondering, how is that possible with me there and you here? You have to come to the picnic to find out. Okay, so seriously, put it on your calendar, May 19th, 3 to 6 p.m. If you can't stay the whole time, that's okay. At least show up at 4 o'clock to hear what, what, what's going on. Uh, if you do plan to attend, we just need you to RSVP so we know how much food to buy. Okay, and we're making it really easy on you to RSVP today. As you leave, our campus pastor, Jason Cribb, will be at the Next Steps table in the lobby answering questions and helping you to RSVP. All right? If you miss him, you can also RSVP on our app or on our website, crosspointcity.church slash adairsville. Cool? Hope to see a lot of you there. All right. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Today we are in week 26 of a series on the book of Genesis. After today, by the way, we're going to be officially halfway through the book, so this is a big deal. We're going to be in Genesis 25 together. Genesis chapter 25. Well, many of, in, uh, many of you in the room, excuse me, know that I love to fish. Can I get an amen, somebody? Yes. Love to fish. Well, back in February of this year, I caught the biggest bass I have ever caught in my life. And I know some of you don't care at all, but I'm showing you the picture anyway. All right, check this out. Look at this thing, man. It's insane, isn't it? Nine pounds. Uh, when it first surfaced in the water, I was pretty sure it was going to be double digits, but the Lord decided to keep me humble, so it was single digits, but it was at least the highest single digit available. All right, nine 
pounds. And I know some of you are wondering right now, James, how in the world did you catch it? I'm so glad you asked. I would love to share the story. (laughs) So I'm fishing with a buddy of mine from church, Jonathan Sutton, who some of you guys know. And uh, we're out at this private lake toward Rome. And there's this spot in the lake. It's, it's kind of a rocky bank, you know, just some rocks stacked up on one another. And so we're fishing this spot, first spot we went to as we got on the water. And I was using this bait called a brush hog. And so I'm throwing it on top of these rocks and just dragging it slowly along. And on about the third cast of the day, this fish took the bait. It acted on an impulsive desire, and it bit my lure without ever realizing that a hook was buried inside And so in essence, listen, in essence, the fish trapped itself by giving into temptation, which I know none of us ever struggle with, right? Like none of us in the room have ever made a bad decision because of an impulsive desire. Am I correct? Now, come on, let's be honest. Some of you are laughing because you know the truth. And the truth is this. We've all done what the fish has done, haven't we? There have been points in all of our lives where we have given in to an impulsive desire and in a moment made a really bad decision. All of us know what temptation feels like, including this guy standing on the platform. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he writes about this in James chapter 1. Here's what he says in verse 14. But each person, that's important, not some persons, not a handful of persons, Maybe a couple persons along the way. Each person. He's talking about all of us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, James is writing here about the nature of temptation. Listen, using fishing language. Seriously. When you study the Greek in this passage, this is exactly what he's doing. He's just teaching us that in the same way a fisherman would tie a lure or a bait onto the end of a line put a hook in it, throw it into the water in hopes of enticing the fish to act on an impulsive desire. James is saying here, listen, we have a very real enemy who does the same to us. An enemy who tempts us, lures us, entices us by using his own, our, our own desires against us. And here's the thing. He knows exactly what to use in your life to entice and lure you, right? Well, we have an enemy who knows what you struggle with. He knows if you struggle with lust, anger, greed, pride, addiction, worry, insecurity, the list goes on and on. And so what he'll do is he'll go into his spiritual tackle box and he'll open it up and he'll start looking through things and he'll go, okay, hey, that lure will work for that person. And so he'll tie it on and he'll throw it out in front of you all in hopes of enticing you to bite. But here's the really good news. You have a choice as to whether or not you take the bait. You have a choice. Contrary to what some of you might think or what you may have been told along the way, Satan cannot make you bite, you choose to bite. And once you do, you're trapped. You see, that's all temptation is. Temptation is a trap. A trap that the enemy wants to use in your life to kill from you, steal from you, and destroy you. And if you decide to step into one of his traps... Unfortunately, it can have massive consequences, some of which you cannot undo. And that's exactly what we see in our passage. If your Bibles are open, we're going to pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 25. Here's what it says. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We'll stop there and talk. 
Uh, I have a younger brother. His name is John. We're about four and a half years apart, and we are very different people, always have been. Uh, growing up, I was the kid who was usually outdoors doing something, playing sports in somebody's front or backyard. And my brother, he was always the kid that was spending a little bit more time inside, reading books, watching movies, playing video games. Uh, as a teenager, I was the kid who always wanted to be gone, never wanted to be home, wanted to be out and about somewhere else, hanging with friends. My brother, as a teenager, was more of a homebody. Uh, he was the kid who invited all of his friends to our house to hang. I was the more rebellious, hot-tempered out of the two. Parents, there is hope. Just keep praying for your kids, all right? Be patient and love them. Thank God for my parents. My brother, he was the more cool, calm, collected, even-tempered out of the two. Uh, I'm pretty sure he just watched me get in trouble over and over and over again and decided, yeah, I'm not really interested in living like that. But very different people. And what we see in our passage is the same, right? We find two brothers who could not be more different from one another. Okay, first we have Esau. And Esau is basically a Bartow County redneck, okay? <laughs> like seriously. This is a dude, when I picture Esau, I think of a guy that you'd see on the front of Field and Stream magazine, okay? He's rough, he's tough, he's adventurous. I imagine he had a big, beautiful red beard, loved the outdoors, and was really good at finding animals and killing them. Okay, we also know from the passage that, that Esau, he was somewhat of a daddy's boy, right? Uh, the passage tells us that Isaac, this is the dad, loved Esau because he ate of his game, now, on a surface level, that seems weird, doesn't it? Strange reason to love a son. But it's not really that much different from dads today who prefer or favor sons over other sons because of what certain sons have to offer. You've seen this, haven't you? Like the dad who prefers one son over the other because that kid's good at sports. Prefers one son over the other because he's good in school. Prefers one son over the other because he likes a certain hobby that dad likes. And dad, I say this to caution you and because I care about you, those are really terrible reasons to favor your kids. And if you're not careful, your favoritism can come back to bite you in a really bad way. It did for Isaac. And we're going to see that when we get to Genesis chapter 27 in a couple of weeks, all right? So we have Esau, and then we have the younger brother, Jacob. When I think of Jacob, I picture a guy seated in a high-back chair, reading C.S. Lewis books, smoking a pipe, doing crossword puzzles, and watching Lord of the Rings. That's who I picture. Which again, none of that's bad stuff. It's just, I think that's who Jacob was. When you study the language here, you find that he was more stable, calm, civilized, thoughtful, reflective, more of the homebody type. We also learn from the passage that Jacob was a mama's boy. Right? Isaac favored Esau. Rebecca, the mom, favored Jacob. We don't know the reasons why. We just know they had a pretty tight-knit relationship. Now, what we see next in the story, it's pretty fascinating. Jacob, the younger brother, he leverages, if you will, his very calm, even-tempered personality to take advantage of his very unsteady and impulsive brother. Look at verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted, this is really important to the story. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you, underline that word. We'll come back to it. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. In parentheses, there's a little commentary, therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. 
And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we see a great irony in the story here. Okay, Esau, the skilled hunter, becomes the hunted. He goes out on another hunting excursion, and while he's away, his brother Jacob decides to cook some stew. And when you go back and you study the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament, you find that Jacob wasn't cooking stew just to cook stew. In actuality, he was setting a trap. You see, Jacob, and we'll, we'll find this out in the coming weeks as well, he was a schemer, a manipulator, a deceiver. And he had thought this thing through. In his mind, here's what he was doing. He was thinking to himself, okay, my brother's about to be out all day trying to find animals. When he gets home, he's going to be tired and hungry. And so if I cook food while he's gone, I can probably play on his weak, impulsive desires and trick him into giving me what I want. And that's exactly what happens in the story. Uh, Esau comes home from his little hunting trip. He's completely wiped out, absolutely exhausted. And you can almost picture him just falling into his chair. And he looks over and he sees Jacob cooking and he starts to smell the stew. And he goes, bro, let me get some of that. Again, when you go back to the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the language that's used to describe uh, Esau's response, it's meant to reveal his very impulsive nature. Okay, it's a picture of a guy literally sitting back in his chair with mouth open saying to his brother, I want to gulp that down. Just come pour it in my gullet. And he's repeating himself over and over and over and over again. This is the same nature, by the way, that Esau would go on to pass down to his descendants. Remember that commentary I point out? His name was called Edom. Uh, Esau was the father of a people called the Edomites. Edom is very closely related to the Hebrew word for red, which is Adom, and that's where the name comes from. And the Edomites, we know from history, like their father Esau, were a very impulsive people. Here's what I find so fascinating, and I told you we'd come back to this. Behind Esau's impulsive desire in the story was exhaustion. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to give in to impulsive desires when you're exhausted? Come on, I see a lot of head shaking going on. If we're honest, we all know what that's like, right? Let, let me put it in perspective for us. Uh, you've been putting, on long, putting in long hours at work, or maybe you're a student and you're staying up late, late doing all your schoolwork. You're not sleeping well. You're not eating well. You're not exercising regularly. Physically, you're exhausted. And out of nowhere, the enemy throws a bait in front of you. And in your exhausted state, you take it without ever turning your brain on. Or what about this? You're walking through some kind of difficulty in life. A trial, hardship has come your way. Stress and anxiety sets in. And because you haven't been proactive about walking with other followers of Jesus Christ, you find yourself in isolation and emotionally you're exhausted. And all of a sudden, again, the enemy throws the bait in front of you and you start thinking to yourself, maybe if I take that, I'll get some relief and some reprieve. Or what about this? Life is busy. Your kids are all over the place if you're a parent. Uh, You're really, really bad at saying no to things and people. And so you stretch yourself so thin that you make absolutely no time for the Lord. Right? You're not in his word at all. You're not spending time in prayer at all. You're not using your gifts to serve his church. Um, in fact, you're out of church more than you're in church. And so you're spiritually exhausted. 
And the enemy throws that bait in front of you. And because your heart has drifted from Jesus, you desire that thing more than you desire him. Does it sound familiar to anybody? It should to all of us, right? Because I think we've all been there at times. And again, the point I'm making is really simple. It is so much easier to do stupid stuff when you're tired. It is. And some of you know it from, from your own experiences. And so here's my encouragement to you. Really practical stuff. You ready? Number one, go to bed. <laughs> like seriously, and I, and I know we laugh, but, but seriously, go to bed. Sleep studies show that the average person needs at least seven to eight hours of sleep a night. I know some of you want to argue with me on that. Well, not me, James. I'm different than, you know, 99.9% of the world. I only need five hours of sleep at night. Okay, fine. Chances are, just remember my words, chances are at some point you'll do something dumb because you're tired. Go to bed. If you're married, go to bed with your spouse. Well, my spouse goes to bed at like 9 o'clock, James. I'm not tired. Okay, like leave a light on or read a book or something, right? Like nothing good ever happens when you go to bed later than your spouse. Go to bed with your spouse. Make it a point to eat well. Exercise a few days a week. Do whatever it takes to keep yourself healthy uh, physically. The second thing I would tell you is this. Avoid living in isolation. Avoid living in isolation. Do not be that person who thinks, I can do this by myself. No, you can't. As people, we were never meant to walk through life alone. And Christianity, my friends, is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. We need each other as followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, especially when life is hard. Are you walking through difficulty? What you need is people around you speaking into your life, praying for you, encouraging you, holding your arms up when you get tired. You need that. I need that. Some of you in the room today need to go see a counselor. You need to pay some money and go see a Christian counselor. I've told you this before, um, one of the greatest things I have ever done personally was go see a counselor. It did wonders for me and my wife, both emotionally and relationally. Some of you need to get over your pride and just go do that because you need help right now. You do whatever it takes to stay healthy emotionally. And then the third thing I would say to you is this, make time for the Lord. Make time for the Lord. Be in church, be in a group be in the word, be in prayer, use your gifts to serve God's church, make time to be with the Lord. I know some of you, as you hear me say that, you go, well, James, I just don't have time for all that. And here's what I would say to you today out of love, okay? Please don't miss this. If you're saying right now, I don't have time, what you have is not a time issue, it's a value issue. You're smart, you know this. We make time as people for what we value. You see, if you pulled out your calendar right now and you showed it to me, I could tell you exactly what you value without ever having a conversation with you. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to value time with the Lord because if we don't, we will quickly slip into spiritual unhealthiness and before we know it, we will step into a trap set by the enemy. This is exactly what Esau does. In his exhausted state, his brother says to him, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. You see, as the oldest son, Esau was the rightful heir to everything belonging to his father Isaac. And what belonged to his father Isaac? Everything that belonged to Abraham, his father before him. And so we're talking about all of Abraham's wealth. We're talking all the promises God gave Abraham that we've talked about for weeks and weeks now as part of this series. 
Promises to bless him, to make his name great, to make him the father of a great nation, to bless all the families of the earth through him. Right In this moment, Jacob is saying to Esau, that's what I want. Okay, if you want my stew, I want all of your promises and all of your possessions. And listen, there's a principle in this that we cannot miss. We actually learn something valuable from what Jacob is doing here. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. We learn that pursuing good things in the wrong way is a bad thing. (laughs) That pursuing good things in the wrong way is a bad thing. I'll tell you what fascinates me so much about Jacob. Even though he was a jerk and a schemer and a manipulator, he was a man of faith. And his faith is on display right here in the story. Here was a man who had full confidence that every promise God gave his granddad and his dad would come to pass, and he wanted to be a part of those promises. Yet his problem was he was forcing his way in through deceit, through manipulation. His goal was to take advantage of his brother's weak desires to get what he wanted. And in reality, listen, if we're not careful, we can do the same. So, for example, let's say you're the person in the room today who wants influence, which is a great thing, right? Influence is awesome. Um, But maybe you're also that person that is pursuing influence through prideful means. You're a self-promoter. You know, if we opened up your Instagram or your Facebook page right now, it would just be a long line of selfies and self-praise. You know what I'm talking about. We we know people like this. Uh, Maybe you're the person who wants money, which is a great thing. Money can accomplish a lot of good stuff. Money is not evil, by the way. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is evil. Money itself is not evil. Money can accomplish incredible kingdom stuff when used correctly. So maybe you're the person wanting money, but you're chasing it through dishonest or deceitful means. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you take, you take advantage of, you step on people to get to where you want to be in life. Single people in the room, what about this? Um, Maybe you're pursuing a relationship right now, and you're pursuing it through manipulation. You're putting on a front and pretending to be somebody you're not, all in hopes that the other person will say yes. I mean, I could give examples all day long, but again, the point I'm making is simple. Pursuing good things in the wrong way is a bad thing. And when you do that, you not only dishonor God, but you hurt other people in the process. And this is exactly what Jacob does to his own brother. Instead of just loving his brother and going, dude, I know you're hungry and I know you're tired and I've cooked some stuff. Here you go. Just come enjoy and feast. (laughs) He goes, no, no, look, if you want what I have, you've got to give me what you have. And Esau responds and says, bro, I'm about to die. Now, question, was Esau really about to die in this moment? Now, he's being a little dramatic, okay? Reminds me of my my girls. They're seven and four. You know, they come inside after playing all afternoon in the backyard, and they throw themselves on the floor, and they say, Daddy, I'm starving. And I remind them, you haven't missed a meal today, not a single one. And dinner's in like 30 minutes. I think you're going to survive, right? And so this is Esau, bro. I'm about to die just being dramatic. And then he goes on to say next, of what use is a birthright to me? He's literally saying, Jacob, I want you to understand that in this moment, what you have is more important to me than what I have. Like I would rather have a full belly right now than to experience the future blessings of my birthright. And so Jacob, the schemer, he capitalizes and he goes, great, well, just swear to me right now that you're going to give it to me. And Esau does, and as we read in the passage, he despises his birthright. That word despise there means that he treated it as worthless, and he trades it to his brother for a bowl of stew. 
What we learn from this really, really bad decision is simply this, and this is the big idea of today's passage and message. So if you're taking notes, jot it down. We learn from Esau that trading the priceless for the worthless is a trap. That trading the priceless for the worthless is a trap. I would bet that there are some of you sitting here right now looking at me, especially if you've never heard this story, you're thinking to yourself, how could a guy be so dumb? Like, are you joking me? Like, stew? Like, how could a guy trade something so invaluable for something so not valuable? But the truth is, people still do it all the time today, don't they? You see, the enemy is so good at this. He is so good, listen, at using our impulsive desires to blind us to what is actually important. Right? He'll go into his spiritual tackle box. He'll pick out a lure or a bait that he knows will work for a particular person. And he'll throw it out in front of them. And he'll start enticing them. Hey, give in. Indulge. Satisfy. And he'll even try to convince them of this. If you don't satisfy, you're going to die. If you don't take the bait, dude, you ain't going to make it. And then he'll start whispering stuff like this. Don't worry about your marriage right now. Don't worry about your kids right now. Don't worry about your influence or your reputation right now. Of what value is that stuff to you right now? It's useless. In a moment like this, all you need to do is give in and satisfy. And unfortunately, in many cases, that's what people do. They shrug off the priceless for momentary pleasure. And before they know it, their entire lives are crumbling down around them because of a really bad decision they made in a moment because the enemy played on an impulsive desire. That raises a big question, a big question that we need to answer, and it's this. How do we avoid that trap? How do we as people avoid doing what Esau did by trading in the priceless for the worthless? Well, I want to give you three really practical answers to that question. We'll start here. This is... So critical. If you don't get this, the other two points don't really matter. This is where it starts. Number one, you direct your desires to the cross. How do we avoid the traps of the enemy? First and foremost, we direct our desires to the cross. The old Puritan John Owen said it best, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Strong words, very true words. Listen, the way that we kill sin before it kills us is by taking or directing our sinful desires back to the cross of Jesus Christ, right? In those moments where the enemy has the bait in front of us and he's enticing us and working to convince us, give in, take the bait, bite, satisfy, trade in all that's priceless for what's worthless. We run to the cross of Jesus Christ and we remember Christ died for this. Christ died for this. This fling I want to have, this money I want to take, this lie I want to tell, this screen I want to look at, these are worthless sins that put my Savior on the cross. And so instead of doing what Esau did and just reacting impulsively in a moment, we stop and we think and we consider and we allow the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ to stir up our affections for him while at the same time exposing the bait of the enemy for what it is. And what is it? It's a trap. It's a trap. There is a hook buried somewhere inside of that thing, and if you take it and you bite it, the enemy will use it to wreck and destroy your life. In addition, we also run to the cross to remember that as followers of Jesus Christ, sin has no power over us any longer. Amen? 
Right? Jesus Christ died to give us power and victory over sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. Uh, he teaches there that as loved sons and daughters of God, we now have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And because he lives inside of us, we have no obligation to sin anymore. But instead, the Holy Spirit gives us the power we need to put our sin to death. And listen, let's be real. I know it doesn't always feel like that. When you're staring tempt- tempt- uh, temptation in the face and that lure is just like resting on your nose, <laughs> at times it feels like if I don't bite that, I'm not going to make it. This is why we run. This is why we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, to kill those false desires and to remember what's actually true. And what's true is simply this, that you have everything you need from the God of the universe to kill sin before it kills you. We direct our desires to the cross. Number two. How do you avoid the trap of the enemy? You decide who you want to be in the end. You decide who you want to be in the end. Something I think Esau failed to do. (laughs) Esau was a man who lived for the moment, and he probably never thought about life 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. We have to decide now who we want to be in the end. Uh, Back in March, we took our staff on a retreat up to Windshape at Berry College, and the last morning we were there, Uh, I just stood before our team, and I shared with them my dreams for the end of my life. And uh, I'll try to get through this a little better than I did at 8 o'clock. It just got me a little choked up. I don't know why, because I didn't get choked up in front of them, but see if I can get through this, all right? (laughs) I I shared with them these things. I said, I want to be, I I can already feel it, I want to (laughs) be, I want to be that old dude at the end of my life, 80, 90 years old, sitting on my porch, holding my wife's hand, Marriage better than it's ever been. I want to be that guy that looks back on my career in ministry. And I do so with confidence because I know I've been faithful. Faithful to Christ. Faithful to my family. Faithful to this church. Uh, I pray and I dream that my daughters at that point in my life will still love Jesus and his church that they'll be married to godly men who love Jesus and his church, that I'll have a bunch of grandkids running around who love Jesus and his church. And I told my staff this. I said, if that's what's true of me at the end of my life, I will count my life as a success, massive success. I don't care how big our church gets. I don't care how many people show. That doesn't matter to me. I just want to know that at the end of my life, I'll be found faithful. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. That won't be true at the end if I'm not making decisions today that are going to get me there. Right? In other words, that won't be the conclusion if the plot of my life right now doesn't line up. And can I just remind you today, the same is true for you. You will not possess nor will you enjoy things of lasting value in the end if you are trading them in now for worthless pursuits. They won't. So let me just ask you and be honest with yourself. Who do you want to be in the end? Who do you want to be? 80, 90 years old, who do you want to be? What do you want people to say about you? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to look back on your life and remember about how you lived, what you did, what you accomplished? What do you want your family to look like, your marriage and your kids? Hear me, those are decisions you make not 20 years from now, not 50 years from now. Those are decisions you make right now. Teenagers, look, I know a bunch of y'all, let me just tell you, you make that decision now. 
college students in the room, you make that decision now so that for the rest of your life, you can make decisions every day to get you to where you want to be in the end. Decide who you want to be and live every day of your life with the end in mind. Last point is this, number three, as I wipe tears and snot from my face. (laughs) Ah, come on. It's just real life stuff, isn't it? Real life stuff, and we all need it, including me. Number three, how do we avoid the traps of the enemy? Here's what you do. You determine what you could lose by saying yes. You determine what you could lose by saying yes. One of the most important questions you can ask when the enemy has his bait in front of you, enticing you, trying to lure you, is this question. If I take the bait, what priceless thing could I lose? If I take the bait, what priceless thing could I lose? Could I lose my marriage? Could I lose my kids? Could I lose my career? Could I lose my reputation, my influence, my ability to impact the world for the sake of Christ? Just so you know, the answer to that question is almost always yes. (laughs) If you embrace and pursue worthless things, in some way you will sacrifice a priceless thing. And Esau learned this lesson in a really painful way. Uh, I have to imagine that there were probably points over the course of his life where he found himself looking back and just going, stew. Like, what was I thinking? Dude, I was hungry again like an hour later. Why would I give up all that I gave up for that? And again, I don't know about you. I don't want to be the guy stepping in that trap. I don't want to be looking back on my life years from now going, What was I thinking? I traded in all those priceless things and priceless people for those worthless pursuits. I don't want that to be my story. Um, I remember years ago talking to my dad about this. Uh, I was a student pastor at the time, and I had a couple of friends in ministry, good buddies that I had known for a while, who both fell out of ministry due to affairs. One of the guys I had to personally confront one of the most painful conversations I've ever had. And I just remember watching these guys. They made really bad decisions to go outside of their marriage and to engage in sexual activity with somebody else they were not married to, and they suffered massive loss. And I, and I said to my dad, in frustration, some things that I cannot repeat in front of all of you today. I was just so angry. But I just remember telling him, I don't want to be that guy. I just don't want that to be my story. And ever since that day, I have prayed a simple prayer on a consistent basis that goes something like this. God, please don't let me screw my life up. I mean, just a week ago, I prayed this prayer. I was pulling in my garage at home, listening to a podcast. I don't even remember who I was listening to or what he said that sparked me to pray that. But I just remember yet again, I'm getting out of my uh, car before I go into my house. And I'm just praying, God, please don't let me screw my life up. Because here's what I know. I am not beyond doing what Esau did. And look at me, neither are you. As broken people, we are fully capable of making a really bad decision because of an impulsive desire. And hear me, all it takes is one bad decision to blow your entire life up. And the reality is, if we want to avoid the traps of the enemy, we need God's help to do so. You are not strong enough on your own to avoid him. You need God to give you supernatural strength to pull this off. And so as we close, that's what we're going to pray for right now. Before we do, let me just say one final thing. Uh, I imagine that there are probably some of you here who've just listened to all this and you're going, "Uh, James, what about me? 
um, I feel like I am Esau. I've stepped into a trap. I've made some bad decisions. And in many ways, I have blown my life up. James, what about me? Here's what I want to say to you. God loves you and he has grace for you today. You have not gone too far. Your sin is not too great. You have not separated yourself from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. God has grace for you. What I cannot promise you is that God will undo all the consequences of your bad decision. He may not. He didn't for Esau. Right? Esau had to live with the consequences of the decision that he made. But what I can promise you is that if you will humble yourself before the Lord, he will meet you in grace and give you the fresh start that you desperately need. And so with all that said, can we just pray together right now? Just heads bowed, eyes closed all across the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And why don't you just begin to pray however the Lord leads. Just pray and ask for supernatural strength. Maybe some of you need to just run to the cross of Jesus Christ right now in prayer and remember what he's done for you. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit of God just to stir up deeper affections in your life for Jesus so that he becomes more attractive to you than those worthless things that the enemy is putting in front of you. If you need to ask God for grace today, do it. Just confess where you've fallen short, where you've failed. And let the God of all grace meet you where you are today to restore you. Just however you feel led, just pray right now. as many of you are continuing to pray and please do that I would bet that there are probably some of us here who are caught in the snare of the enemy simply because we have never put our faith in the God that we've talked about today and again if that's you you probably know who you are because you walked in today and you feel defeated and you feel hopeless and you have no joy and you have no peace and you wonder what you're even doing in life why you're here And I just want to say to you, it's no accident that you showed up today. Um, The God of the universe who created you brought you here so that you could hear the truth. And the truth is this, God in his grace can set you free. He can change your life. He can give you the hope that you need, the peace that you need. He can make all of life look different for you. And he does that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You see, Jesus 2,000 years ago died and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for your sin and to free you from the grip of the enemy forever. So if you need to put your faith in that Jesus today and have your life changed for the rest of eternity, I'd love to help you do that in this moment. You can just pray something like this. Just tell God, say, God, I know that I've been trapped, but God, I'm ready to be set free. I need my life to change. And I believe Jesus can change me and save me. And so I put my faith in his death for me, in his resurrection for me. And God, I'm asking you today to forgive me of all my sins, to take hold of my life 
and to set me free. I say yes to following Jesus.